Well, many of you are no doubt familiar with Jonathan Edwards. For those of you who are not, I am not referring to the current Democratic presidential candidate, but the 18th century preacher, pastor, theologian, writer, and great man of God who has long been a model for believers through his affectionate theological precision and fervent pursuit of sanctification in his own life and then in the life of the church and has thankfully been handed on down to us to be able to read a lot of his works. And when you read Edwards, you quickly see that this man was obsessed with promoting and enjoying the glory of God in all things. Perhaps nowhere is this more clearly seen than when you take a look at his 71 resolutions. Edwards sat down, even as a young man before the age of 20, and began to thoughtfully and prayerfully articulate what he believed would be good, faithful, biblical resolutions to navigate his Christian life to keep him girded and and fixed on the main thing, which would be the glory of God. It's amazing to note that many of these resolutions he wrote before he was even the age of 20, as he was getting ready to take a pastorate in, in New York. So here we are providentially on the doorstep, the threshold, if you will, of a new year. And culturally, we are in the business of making resolutions. And historically, the church has been in the business of making resolutions. So I would like to read a couple of Edwards' resolutions this morning to kind of set our table, so to speak, for our passage in Colossians, which will hopefully help us to be more resolved, to be faithful and fervent in ministry. Edwards' first resolution, I'll just read a few of them quickly, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Edwards writes, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. And in his 41st resolution, he said, Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly, in any respect, have done better. While Jonathan Edwards himself is not inspired, or was not inspired, his words are nonetheless gripping. They are gripping for us as Christians because Edwards understood the fleeting and diminishing nature of time. And at the same time, he understood the infinite value and worth of the glory of God. So you put these two together and you have a man motivated to serve and enjoy and live for the glory of God in all things. And fittingly, we are here on the, like I said, the threshold of a new year. We're all ready to flip the calendar. And we too, if we are Christians, we want to serve and enjoy our great God with all of our being and all of our days. So this morning we turn to the book of Colossians for some instruction, example, and if need be, correction in the area of Christian ministry. But we wanted to be in the business of asking ourselves wherein I could possibly, in any respect, do better. 
It was our goal even this morning as we looked at the Apostle Paul. So this morning, we want to see firsthand something of faithful and fervent ministry that is aimed to the glory of God. So if you haven't already, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. We'll be in the first chapter and we'll be in the book of Colossians our whole time this morning. But if you're new to the Bible, perhaps we gave you one this morning on the front front few pages of the table of contents. The book of Colossians is in the second half of the book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way to the back. In the book of Colossians itself, contextually, is written by the Apostle Paul, as I've already alluded to. And it is written by Paul to a community of believers, much like ourselves, in a church. But Paul has neither seen these believers or, or, or met the believers. But he's writing to combat streams of bad teaching that has somehow crept into the drinking water of the church. And the attacks themselves center on going after the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, His life and His work. And what follows in the book of Colossians is nothing less than an an unrivaled, inspired assertion of the greatness of Jesus Christ. But Paul himself is at the expiration date of his life. He is in a Roman prison, and that expiration date is staring at him in the form of a Roman guard. He's being imprisoned as an enemy of the state. He's a criminal for the gospel. He's a proclaimer of the gospel, so that has landed him in a jail cell in a Roman prison. But while in jail, he's writing a letter to this church in Colossae, which is about a thousand miles from that jail cell. And what we wind up here for us this morning is a blueprint for faithful and fervent ministry. So let's go ahead and look, if you're not there already, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And we'll look at three marks of faithful ministry. And before we read the text, I'll give you the outline and hopefully you can see them as we go. But in verses 24 through 27, a proper mindset for ministry. A proper mindset for ministry. In verses, verse 28, first half of the verse, we see a proper message for ministry. And thirdly, in verse 28 through 29, we see a proper motivation for ministry. So quite simply, mindset, message, motivation. In terms of ministry, what is proper as exemplified by the Apostle Paul. So let's go ahead and read together verses 24 through 29. Look with me if you would. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church in the filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ. In you, the hope of glory, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Well, as we endeavor to understand more faithful ministry and to be more fervent in ministry, and we want to look at the example of the Apostle Paul, let's look at his mindset first. And this is in verses 24 through 27. And we notice right away as we begin reading this verse that Paul says something strange here. At least from a natural perspective, he says something kind of, kind of strange. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. 
That's kind of a strange thing to say from a natural perspective. There's four reasons which I noted why this is kind of strange. Naturally speaking, it is abnormal to rejoice in suffering, period, is it not? I'm rejoicing in my suffering. You know, normal people kind of look at you cockeyed for that. Number two, he's rejoicing. His rejoicing is inclined toward people he's never met personally. So he's rejoicing for their sake, these people whom he's never met. Thirdly, he said he's suffering for the body of Christ. And fourthly, there's that curious statement about finishing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So it, it is a strange set, set, uh, statement. But from a, a biblical perspective, to rejoice in suffering is not strange at all. In fact, it's even commanded. And it's modeled throughout the Scriptures. Even the Apostle Peter and John in the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul would even say in Philippians chapter 1, it's been granted you, even the gift, grace talk, it's been granted you not only to believe, but to suffer for His name's sake. So it is the Christian's birthright not only to believe, but also to suffer. So how, how would it be something to rejoice in? Well, just a quick, brief theology of suffering some different things that the New Testament talks about. Suffering brings a blessing, Matthew 5.10. Suffering affirms your profession, 2 Timothy 3.12. Suffering glorifies Christ. It shows your union with Him, Romans 8.17. Suffering encourages other believers, even as this passage says here. Suffering works to sanctify you as a believer, Romans chapter 5, verses 3-5. through 5. Suffering produces confidence, confidence, excuse me, confidence and comfort. For no, nowhere are you more comforted and confident than when you're in the furnace of affliction in the greatness of Christ and His power to save and strengthen and sustain you. Furthermore, it elicits others to praise. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. So it's not biblically unclear that, that believers are to rejoice in the midst of suffering. In the joy that we have, even as James chapter 1 says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, is not... The joy that we have is not in the absence of suffering or even in some type of strange rejoicing just because we're getting beat on or persecuted. It's neither of the two. So it's not a biblical prayer just to say, oh, take this away and I'll be happy or give me more beatings so I can be happy. But rather it's the presence of God in the midst of the suffering which brings about the joy. It is the overriding sovereignty and goodness of the, of the Lord God Himself in the presence of the affliction, that reminds you that God not only brought the trial, but it's for your good. And in the midst of that, you can rejoice because God knows better than you and He's bringing something for your own good. And with that, you can rejoice. And you can, re- you can be happy even in the midst of it, knowing that God is more wise than you and He's doing it for your good, as Romans 8 would say. But Paul says he's rejoicing for their sakes. We have in this immediate context, if you look up at verse 23, Paul says he's a servant, a minister of the gospel. He's a servant. So even his suffering is, is wrapped into this idea of being a servant. So as Paul lives and breathes, he breathes for the glory of God as a gospel minister. That is, that is Paul's whole life, living and breathing for the glory of God. So when Paul is faithfully enduring suffering, he knows that he is serving others. So his faithfulness in the midst of suffering births faithfulness in other believers' lives as they are encouraged. So Paul himself can, while suffering, he can rejoice and he can smile upon the good providence of God, even in the face of a frowning world. Because he knows that God is good and sovereign and he has brought it. 
That's encouraging. That is a good example for us of a guy that's in the midst of it. He's not just talking theoretically about suffering, but he is chained to a Roman guard. That's, that's pretty good. It's good practical stuff for us. It says in verse 24, he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, that's a, that's a statement that's been become a favorite verse of those who, who have some type of a desire to undermine the sufficiency of the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. They would argue that there's more suffering required, so Paul is doing his part to get himself over the proverbial hump, if you will, into heaven. So he's going to suffer, and then he'll be able to get, get by. But even the, the book of Colossians in this immediate context repudiates such things. as It's just false. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient. Even as Colossians 2.13 says, He's forgiven us all of our transgressions. The, forg- the sins for believers have been canceled out, to use Colossians terms, because of the death of Jesus Christ. It is in no wise insufficient, but rather completely sufficient to save sinners such as us. It's better to take the passage as seeing Paul as an extension of Jesus Christ. He's being persecuted, there's no doubt. Why is he being persecuted? It is for the gospel. So Jesus Christ, even as Colossians chapter 1 says, is what? The head of the church. So as they attack Paul, they are attacking Jesus Christ, the head of the church. You might remember in chapter 9 of Acts, the book of Acts says that Paul, speaking of him, is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. ESV says that he was ravaging the church. And of course, as we continue reading, he was subsequently, what, knocked off of his pharisaical horse, literally? And what did the Lord Jesus Christ say to him from heaven? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As Saul was running into homes and pulling women and children and men and bringing them out and assaulting them and and marching up to Damascus with the intention of, of completely purging the planet of Christians, he was assaulting Jesus Christ because it's his church. And there's great continuity and unity between the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the head of the church, Jesus Christ. So when Paul says that he is, he's filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ, he is merely saying that there is more suffering to do for Christ and now it's being done through his church. And Paul sees himself as the one who's absorbing that suffering even as he's being imprisoned for the gospel. So there's nothing lacking in the cross work, but there's just more suffering to come because of the cross work, you could even argue. Does that make sense? Hopefully. So Paul demonstrates a proper mindset with respect to suffering. It is it's really good for us to have this locked down and ready to go when you encounter trials. Because I didn't say if, it's when. It's going to happen. Either you're in a trial, you just got out of one, or you're headed to one. It's going to happen, and it's right to approach it and, and deal with it with a proper biblical perspective for your sanctification, for the, the glory of God, and the enjoyment and encouragement of even others. But this perspective comes even more from his perspective of ministry. Look at verses 25 through 27. We'll just start reading in verse 25. He had a view of ministry as a stewardship. He says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. That that word in verse 25, stewardship, is so good. It is a a life-shaping, it is a motive-assaulting word. Stewardship. He viewed Ministry is a stewardship. In the basic sense, that means that he was responsible for the ministry that he had, that God had given to him. He had a responsibility to oversee and conduct himself in a manner as which someone who is subordinate to somebody else. He viewed his ministry as a stewardship. It was a trust from God. Paul has been made a, a functional manager, if you will, of the gospel promotion. 
Did you notice the source of his ministry? Verse 25, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. Paul clearly saw ministry coming from God himself. Paul was given ministry and he was to be a steward over that ministry because the source of the ministry was God himself. By application, this is the same, the same is true for us as well. We are in ministry. We do ministry together. Who is the source of the ministry that is given? It is God himself. We are to be good stewards of it because God has given it and we want to, we want to serve him and glorify him. It goes on to say even more, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Again, this is revolutionary as well. Many of you and I know and understand theologically that ministry is to be done with a joyful and fervent heart sent on the glory of God and the edification of other believers. We have the right answers. But how many of you, when serving in, let's say, the nursery, or ushering, or greeting, or working in the bookstore, or preparing a Bible study, or whatever, whatever it may be, or going to do evangelism, or, or, or something, something ministry-wise, or cleaning the church, how many of you think that this ministry, which I am engaging right now, is a stewardship from God and for the benefit of other believers. See, I fear that many of us, we could pass the test, we could write the right answers, fill in the multiple choice, we'd get it right in the classroom, but when we go out on the playing field, we, we, there's a disconnect sometimes. And we do ministry for ourselves rather than for God and for others. And Paul says, no, no, no. Ministry is a stewardship from God for others. I wonder how we might act differently in, in our ministry if we knew and we, we constantly reminded ourselves that there is an omniscient, ever-watching eye observing and criti- critically observing all of our ministry. Everything that we do, that, that eye would be God himself. He's watching everything we do. And he has inflexible standards. He wants holiness. He wants righteousness. He wants us to glorify his son. He doesn't want us to use our ministry as a tool to exalt ourselves, but as a means to encourage other believers and exalt Christ. So now we get at it and we say, oh, now this ministry is a stewardship. It's not supposed to be for my benefit primarily, but the glory of God and the benefit of others. This is good. This is revolutionary stuff that we need to be reminded of because we forget this. And we begin getting hurt feelings, getting grumpy, getting lazy in ministry, start pulling out of ministry. Bestowed on me for your benefit. It's a stewardship. This is good. We can learn from Paul. Well, Paul goes on to speak in some more specific terms with his personal ministry, but there's some application for us as well. But I want you to see in his mindset, not only did he approach suffering right, and not only did he approach serving right, but he had a big picture of the gospel ministry itself as a weighty ministry. I wonder how many of us think of ministry as weighty. Paul certainly did. Let's look at verses 26 through 27. He says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generation, but has now been manifested to his saints. In verse 26, the purpose of Paul's calling was to preach the word. Paul, Paul is really excited. He is amped up about his ministry. His opportunity is preaching and he's excited to promote the gospel, promote the truth of scriptures. But in the broad scope of redemptive history, This particular time that Paul is in when he is writing this, and it would even extend to where we are right now, is the most blessed time of ministry. It's a weighty time. Paul sees himself as one who is engaged in this ministry. 
this preaching. He is living sent. He is a minister of the gospel. It is waiting. And we too, as believers today, are engaged in the same type of ministry. Each one of us, we're not apostles. That was the, the, the early church. We're not apostles today. They were the foundation of the church. We don't meet the qualifications of seeing the risen Lord, so we're not apostles. But we are followers of Jesus Christ, and we've all been given a ministry of promoting the gospel. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given spiritual gifts through the service. So we are, we are in a ministry of, that's a weighty ministry. It is a blessed ministry. Verse 27 goes on with some more specifics. As I said, in the end of verse 26, it had been manifested to his saints. But now the mystery which has been hidden, but has now been manifested to his saints. This ministry has been hidden. I'm sorry, the mystery has been hidden, but now has been manifested to his saints. The term ministry, um, excuse me, too many M's, ministry. I want to say mystery. The term mystery in the scriptures does not refer to something mysterious. Like, ooh, that's mysterious, like we would think of it today. But Mystery refers to something that would be previously concealed and now currently revealed. There, something nice and easy and it rhymes, so you can remember it. Previously concealed, currently revealed. This is something, a mystery that has not been, uh, the gospel ministry is something that has not been fully uh, articulated and explained in past ages. It's been hinted at, it's been explained, it's been foreshadowed. But by the grace and revelation of God, it has been fully understood and articulated now as Paul is engaged in it, and we as we're engaged in it. This mystery is a weighty, weighty ministry because it is the promotion of the gospel. We have some other terms to look at in verse 26 and 27. It says it has now been manifested to his saints. And now, now this current time, and that now continues on even to now, it's been manifested to his saints. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory. How great is that? Of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Just some highlights here, and I really wish we had more time to to go into depth here. This is great stuff. God made known His glory through this mystery, this ministry of the gospel. God has made known His glory. He did it among the Gentiles, those who were formerly alienated without hope and without God in the world, as Ephesians talks about. Now they are brought together into one family, into the church. And you have the, the, the Jew and the Gentile together serving alongside one another as co-heirs and co-receivers of the promises of God. That is awesome stuff. There's no wall of separation anymore with the Gentiles. They are brought together. They are locking arms with their, their Jewish brothers who are now Christian brothers. That's great stuff. And Paul understands it's weighty and he loves it. And primarily because it is promoting the glory of God himself. There's nothing better than to promote the gospel itself. And that is, that is what this ministry does. And furthermore, there's hope in this gospel. See what it says? The hope of glory. Let me put it this way. If you have one ounce of hope in your life that is truly substantive hope, that is, that is real objective hope, it is anchored by a loving and merciful and gracious string back to Christ Jesus' throne where He owns that hope. He is the hope. So if you have one bit of hope, it's because of the, the righteous, living Savior who gave His life as a sinner substitute for you and rose again from the dead and sits victorious, even now, on His throne. You have hope 
because of Him. And one bit of true hope is attached to the gospel, which is His, He is the gospel. Christ in you is the reception of Christ. You have the hope of glory. So if you have any hope at all, but clearly if you have hope of glory, you have Christ and it is weighty. I'm afraid we don't think in those terms. I'm just going to the church to clean. We're going to promote the gospel. I'm just going to church to staple some things. I'm just going to teach some kids some stuff. No, no, no. You have a weighty ministry because you are promoting Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's nothing more precious to the Godhead than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are a minister of the gospel, if you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel, you are serving in the ministry of the promotion of the gospel, there's nothing more glorious, more weighty than that. Don't short-sell Christ's ministry. Love it. So it's understandable that Paul is a little bit taken back. He's a little bit overwhelmed. He is excited because he understands it is within this framework that the precious gospel, the exclusive means by which God declares His supreme excellencies and provides hope to the homeless. Paul is, Paul is excited. So he's, he's equipped and he's ready to deal with suffering because it's in the context of the gospel. Paul understands the transcendent nature of ministry. Ministry isn't all about his kingdom. He has no kingdom. It's all about Christ's kingdom and about reaching other people so that they can know Christ. So it's a gift of God for the benefit of others and the exaltation of God and everything he does is to promote and declare this. And that is whether he is preaching a sermon with his mouth or whether he is preaching a sermon with his pen or is he is preaching a sermon through receiving the affliction of somebody for the gospel. It doesn't matter. Whatever Paul is doing, it is for this great and weighty cause of promoting the gospel, and he loves it. And I will tell you that if you even begin, if we even begin to believe the biblical hype about the gospel ministry, we'll start acting like Paul. We'll start thinking like Paul. We'll become radical gospel-centered freaks like Paul. Because there's nothing that compares to the greatness of ministry. Because there's nothing that compares to the greatness of Jesus Christ. We forget this. We forget this because we are, we are lured to sleep by the hypnotic world around us, the shiny wrappers of things and stuff, and we forget about the bloodstained cross, the infinite cost, the beauty of Jesus, the hope of heaven, the glory of Christ. Forget about all those things. Paul's got a chain around his legs. In each link, he thinks of the gospel. <laughs> it's all about that. It's all about Christ. And we get wrapped up in too many things that we miss the glory of Christ. So we need a mindset like Paul. We need to see the weightiness of ministry. We need to see that it is worth rejoicing even in suffering because this ministry is so great. We need to have that right mindset when we are in ministry. We can learn a lot from Paul and his mindset, but let's continue to look at the message of this ministry in verse 28, the first half of the verse. The text says, we proclaim Him. Well, if gospel ministry is so great, it must have a great message. And indeed it does. It's as if Paul takes all of the glory and splendor of, of gospel ministry and he just heaps it together, puts it in a big pile, and he just distills it down to one word. And he says, it is so great. It is so wonderful. Here it is. Look at it. And he says, Him. 
Christ. That's what it's all about. It's the proclamation of Jesus. In the book of Colossians, Paul has not skimped on the explanation of who Jesus is to this point, and he doesn't go any forward. Colossians would be one of the most Christ-exalting, Christ-centered books in all of the Bible. And what I want to do, just because I would say everyone would go home and read Colossians, but I don't think everyone would go home and read Colossians. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to jam through Colossians in a sprinting fashion and just remind you who He is. Because you know what? This is good for us. Because we forget who He is. We forget who Christ is. And Paul seeks to remind us in the book of Colossians who Christ is. So I'm going to say who He is in the verses... And we're just going to run through and look at it so you can get a uh, sprinkler effect right across. See who he is, who Christ is. Look back at chapter 1, and we'll just go quickly through this. In verses 4 through 5, he is the source of hope. Down in verse 10, he is the intended audience of a holy life. Verse 13, he's the king. Verse 14, he is the redeemer and the basis for forgiveness. Verse 15, He's the image of God. He is the firstborn. Verse 16, He's the creator of all things and the ultimate object of everything that has been made. He's the ultimate end of everything. He's the purpose for which God created the world would be the glory of Jesus Christ. That's pretty big. Everything for Christ. Verse 17, He's the sustainer of all things. He's the head of the church. In verse 18, And the firstborn from the dead. Verse 19, He's the embodiment of all divine fullness. Verse 20, He's the reconciler, the peacemaker. Verse 21, He's the rescuer, even your rescuer. Verse 22, He's the sovereign Savior and sovereign sanctifier. Verse 27 of chapter 1, He's the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 2, He's the true knowledge of God. Verse 3, He's the source of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is quite a claim. It's quite a truth. Verse 8, He's the one who insults worldly philosophies by exposing its weakness in comparison to Him. Verse 9, He is the fullness of deity in bodily form. That is, He is God in the flesh. Verse 10, He is the one who makes believers complete. Verse 13, He is the source of regenerating power. He's the forgiver. He's the one who came to overcame the law by fulfilling the law. Verse 14. Verse 15, He's the one who triumphed over all rulers and authorities in all the demonic realm. Verses 15 through 23, He's the one who is supreme over all world religion and all sacramental regulations. He's supreme over philosophies of the world, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. He's the only one to defeat and disarm the flesh, verse 23. He's the source and sustainer of the believer's life, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. He's our supreme focus. He is our life, verse 4. He's the object of our hope. The ultimate end of all of our actions are to be thanksgivings to Him. Verses 15, 16, and 17. And He is the one, as it says in verse 11 of chapter 3, He is the one, the only one, who is all in all. He's Christ. And Paul takes all these facts about Jesus from the resume of Christ in the book of Colossians, and he puts them all together into this great grand pile. And he says, Him, Him, Him. We proclaim Him. That's who we proclaim. He's the one who's exclusively glorious, beautiful, wonderful, altogether lovely, sufficient, sovereign. You can just throw on all of the adjectives on Him. And that's who we proclaim. And Paul's pretty excited about it. It's a great message. So Christian, my exhortation to you this morning is do not forget who Jesus is. 
Don't forget who He is. Read the book of Colossians and remind yourselves. Come daily to His Word and remind yourself with, of your shallow memory in Christ's infinite resume how great He is. You need to invigorate your affections by the Word of God and the, and the resume of Jesus Christ, even as Colossians would say, so that you would chiefly value Him and Him alone. And then you'll be motivated to serve Him because He's so great. Well, not only do we have a great message, there's a tone involved here. Christ is the subject of our message. Look again in verse 28. He says, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man. Admonishing is a negative term. There's a negative and a positive. The negative term would be admonishment. It is, a, it is really to put in the mind of, to warn, to exhort. It is to give instructions with regard to life or behavior. It's in light of sin and punishment. It is to correct It's a negative term saying, this is wrong. You're doing the wrong thing. You're on the wrong page. I need to admonish you. That's the gospel message. As D.A. Carson says, it is to wound and to heal. It's to sing and to sting. The gospel stings. It's good. The message of Christ confronts us. You might rightly say that the message of the gospel, Matthew 18's us every day. If you can use that in a verb sense. I don't know if you can. I think you can. You can, Jesus Christ is in the admonishment business through His gospel, confronting us. Then there's the positive side, the teaching. Imparting positive truth, instructing. So He tells you what's wrong, He tells you what's right. In the gospel, in the message of Christ, that is Paul's ministry. But He has an occasion too. It's not, it's not a once a day thing. It's not just Sunday morning we proclaim Him. Grammatically, we see the frequency of this ministry is faithful proclamation. It's to be ongoing. It's in the present tense. It's a present tense proclamation. It is a present tense heralding. Paul is our faithful ministry model and he understands the greatness of gospel ministry and it's as if he never stops proclaiming Christ, explaining Christ, heralding Christ. It's all about Christ. He doesn't stop. He's a continual stream of Christological refreshment. Ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. Christ, Christ, Christ. That's Paul. He's our ministry model. The main verb here was the proclamation. He is saying, we proclaim Him. That's what He does. And you might say, well, how does He proclaim? He gives us two participles underneath it. We admonish and we teach. So our proclamation, which is ongoing, continually, never stopping, always ongoing, is an admonishment proclamation and a teaching proclamation. That is to characterize the ministry of the gospel. Continually. Well, who are the prospects for this message, Paul? Who, Who do you talk to about this stuff? Is it just people that look like us and act like us? Look again at the verse. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. You see that term there, every man, in verse 28. We admonish and teach every man. Simple way to remember this, if you have a pulse, you're a prospect. That's really how it goes. If you have a pulse, you need to hear the message of truth. Paul is an unceasing burden for everyone. Inside the church, outside the church, it is all about proclaiming Christ. The gospel is not our gospel, it's God's gospel. We have no right to limit the scope of its proclamation. We're interested not only in people that look like us and talk like this, us, but everybody who bears the image of God. Paul's mindset is that of a stewardship. His message is intensely Christ-centered. It's all about heralded Christ. But now in the, in the remaining verse and a half, we have a bit about his motivation. We have his mindset. 
of his message. And now look at, look at his motivation in verses 28 through 29. Why does he proclaim Christ with admonishment and teaching to every man? Look what it says. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. The word translated complete is also translated perfect and carries with it the idea of maturity. Same word is used in Ephesians 4. We have the picture of those who are gifted with preaching and teaching of the word and their job is to preach and teach the word and to build people up for the ministry, equipping the saints for the work of service. That is to be everything that we do. Verse 13 says that we're supposed to do this until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, a complete man, a perfect man. And as to we're all complete in Christ. So Paul has this unceasing burden that everybody be mature. What a great guy to be an apostle. God made that guy that guy. That's what it's all about. It's the word of Jesus Christ that changes them. So what does he do? He proclaims it. just want to take a quick 20-second time out. Do you see the connection here between the proclamation of Jesus Christ in the maturity of believers. Proclamation, maturity. Sadly, in our day, people ostensibly go after maturity. We want to see people mature. We set aside the proclamation, whether that is dumping the pulpit over and replacing it with film and media and drama, or cutting it in half so your sermons are 15 minutes and full of stories. But it's taking the hymn out of the proclamation. And I don't mean the hymn like the H-Y-M-N. I mean the hymn like the Jesus Christ that we read about here. You take him out of the proclamation and you ostensibly want to produce believers. You just hijack not only the gospel, but God's plan. What are you doing? So I just want to scratch my head and say, you're a pastor? You're not a pastor. You've abrogated your role. You say you're a pastor. You say you're a Christian. But you've marginalized Jesus Christ in the name of what? Innovation? God doesn't call us to be innovative. He calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be proclaimers. He calls us to be people who submit to Jesus Christ and value Him like the Apostle Paul. If anyone had a right to be innovative, it would be Paul. He didn't. He just preached. So us too, preach, proclaim, live, enjoy, delight in the Gospel. And it will produce maturity in the lives of believers. You start mixing with other stuff and your goal is, is maturity. Either you are ignorant of what the Bible says, don't believe what God says, or you don't want maturity. Any one of those three are reproachable, especially if you're a pastor. Absolutely ridiculous. And if you go to a church or have friends go to a church and they have marginalized Jesus out of the proclamation message and they've replaced it with any one of said programs or events and they're saying they want to produce maturity, they will not produce maturity. They will produce confusion, stunted growth, and people are tossed here and there by every wave of doctrine, as Ephesians 4 says. And if you go there or your friends go there, they need to vacate that place with their absence. Saturate the place with their absence. Vacate it. Because that place is not growing you. They've perverted the gospel. That's more than I wanted to say about this. But this is Jesus Christ's glory and it's His church. And how dare people stop messing with the recipe in the name of innovation. Paul's mindset was that it was a blessed stewardship and he had a blessed message 
And he was motivated to see people conform to the image of Jesus Christ. So he preached the word and he preached the gospel and people were conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and Christ was exalted and he was pleased. So it seems pretty simple. Let's do the same thing. And we'll be on the cutting edge of the first century. That'll be awesome. So Paul even, he was so obsessed with, with maturity. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he play, prayed for their maturity. Even people he never met. Chapter 1, we see him proclaiming so that people would be mature. And I'll submit to you that it should be your goal in ministry as well. To proclaim the word in everything that you do so that people would be made mature. Everything that you do as an individual, everything you do, we do as a church should have the view of proclamating the proclamation of Jesus Christ with the goal of producing mature believers. Even with regard to evangelism, we're absolutely 100% pro-birth or pro-conversion, but we're also pro-life or pro-discipleship. The Great Commission is go tell people and then they actually get converted and grow. So we're all aboard on that. It's all about conversion and growth. So we want to evangelize for the sake of people being made complete in Jesus Christ. I would challenge you with an exercise that I do frequently around here. Just walk around and think about the ministry that goes on at this church. And that ministry should connect somehow to the maturity of believers, to the glory of God. Everything that's done. The nursery. Why do we have a nursery? So that people could sit and listen to the preaching of the Word of God so they can grow with respect to salvation. Why do we have an audio ministry? So message could go online. Why do we have a facilities team where John Endreis takes care of the building and he has a team of people to make sure that it doesn't collapse? Well, if the walls collapse on us, that would be church degrowth. People are just going to leave. This is to keep a building here so we can grow. Why do we have a, people shuttling to drive people back and forth so we could have a, in the, while we raised money for the parking lot? So the word of God could be proclaimed to more people so people wouldn't come in and leave. So everything, everything that goes on, I challenge you to look at it. And if you find something we're doing, where we're just kind of dribbling over in the corner, dribbling the basketball for no reason, come tell somebody. Because that ministry needs to be shut down and we need to go do something else. Because it's all about doing ministry for the glory of God and the maturation of believers into His image. Some of you, sadly, do not serve. Some of you have reduced your involvement in the church of Jesus Christ to just coming here and being in the stands. And you should come here. Don't get me wrong. We need to be here. Do not forsake the assembling together. It is a command. We need to be here. But if this is all of your service in the body of Jesus Christ, then you're not being obedient to Christ. He's given you a gift if you're a believer. It's to be employed for the edification of saints and the glory of God. Let me use a Christmas illustration. Some of us, some Christians, treat their spiritual gift like that Christmas sweater that you really don't like. You smile when you get it. You act happy. You throw it up in the back of the closet. And you know, when, when that guy or that lady comes around, you throw it back on and smile like you like it. So you break it out once a year and you use it. Do we treat our spiritual gifts like that? Oh yeah, this is really great. Occasional tip of the hat. Come to church. Act like you've got it going on because you're wearing your sweater. But at the end of the day, kind of repulsed by the gift, burdened by it, doesn't really fit right. Frankly, it doesn't smell as good as you'd like it either, and it doesn't look good with your jeans. So you throw it aside. Now, I'm trivializing it in a way, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you've been given the gift of service, and you don't serve. Your spiritual gift is a devalued sweater. Just, that's horrible. 
If you're a Christian, you've been given a gift and God is going to ask you to give an account. What are you going to do that day? God has given us gifts that are not to be be ignored, but employed for the glory of God and the building up of the body of Christ. And if if you're a Christian, you're not involved in serving Christ, then you need to get involved. And what a better day than today. A new year starting. Get involved. Join a care group. Serve one another. Pray during the service in the prayer ministry. Go work in the bookstore. Get involved with the cleaning ministry. Go work in children's church. Work in the nursery. They always need people. There's all kinds of opportunities to serve in this place. To augment the promotion of the gospel. There's plenty to do. And I say all of this first because the Bible is going to be a lot more mean and straightforward than I was even right there. Because what is coming next is very convicting if you're a, script, if you, if you're a Christian. Verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes, For this purpose I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. He works hard so that everybody would be ultimately presented in the image of Jesus Christ. But he uses this word here, for this purpose, for this purpose of conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, I labor. The word labor is could be translated to work hard, to become exhausted. It's the word used by Jesus, of Jesus when He was at the well, when He was, he was tired, He was weary at the well. It is a term that is filled with an idea of, of exerting yourself strongly, working hard, struggling. Paul says in light of the, the purpose of seeing people conform to the image of Jesus Christ, I work hard. And grammatically, it's a continual working hard. He's always working hard. He doesn't stop working hard. It wasn't just that good day back in April. It was that good life where I served Jesus Christ. That's what he has in view here. He was a sanctification fanatic. He continually labored. He continually worked to the point of exhaustion. He continually became physically weary. He continually exerted himself beyond what is normal. He continually gave himself to the greatest goal. That's why he's our example by the grace of God. He wasn't the only one. He regularly pointed out others who did the same thing. Romans 6, 16, 16 verse 6. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Romans 16, 12. The fellow workers in the Lord who have worked hard in the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, 10. For it is this that we labor and strive because we've fixed our hope on the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially the believers. When I'm not motivated to, let's just say, go to the prison, to go meet with believers in the jail, to teach them the Bible, because I'm being particularly selfish. I think of Colossians chapter 1. And I think, every man complete in Christ, for this purpose I work hard. How tired are you really right now? Get over there and work hard for the glory of Christ. Or for whatever reason, we want to mail it in in ministry and not work hard. That's less than what we're called to do. From feeling lazy in any area, I need to remember in Colossians chapter 1, the model is working hard to the point of exhaustion. We know about exhausting ourselves, whether it be shopping or going to work during the day or doing physical activity or staying up late watching movies or playing on the computer or doing whatever we're doing. We know about exhaustion. We've gone to bed tired before, but how many times have we gone to bed in the last six months tired from ministry? How perverted is it that we would spend all of our energies that were intended to be given to the glory of God on stuff here? There's nothing wrong with doing stuff, but if you're doing it for the sake, in spite of doing the other things, then we are abrogating our calling. We need to work hard. 
We need to lay our head on the pillow at night saying, I am exhausted, Lord, from ministry today, but your glory is of infinite value. Thank you for the opportunity to work hard for you today. It is a blessing. Give me rest and refreshment that I might do it all again tomorrow by your grace and for your glory. That is biblical ministry. Well, if that wasn't clear enough, we have Paul in verse 29 giving us another good term to explain how he labors. He says that he strives according to his power. A participle explaining how he labors, how he goes about laboring. It is a a striving ministry. It is a term that was used to describe public games, competing for a contest. It's an athletic term. It's also used in terms of fighting with weapons or struggling Striving earnestly. It is the picture of being in a heated competition and working hard to get to the goal. It is also the motivation for getting up early to train for said event and work hard for that goal. Paul said, man, I I work hard. I strive against opposition. Implicit in striving is resistance. And you work against it. Whether it's your own flesh or or others or, or just providential hindrances, whatever it is, you are working hard. That's biblical ministry. That's why we want to study hard, work hard, train hard for the purpose of ministry that we might be able to strive hard. And you say, man, how is that possible? How can I do that? How can I do these things? On your own, it's impossible. Paul gives us the answer here in the end of the verse. For this purpose, I labor striving according to His power, which works mightily within me. It is God Himself that is working in the lives of believers to accomplish His own end. He is powerfully working in Christians to accomplish His own end. That's encouraging. So you don't have to muster up the energy to do anything. You just need to fall on your face, repent, and ask for energy, and pray that God would empower you, and you will do it. It's a great encouragement. We need to work hard in ministry this year. We need to, we need to serve with exertion in ministry. Because you know, if, if you sit here and work hard in ministry here, you are locking arms for the purpose of the gospel with the stated goal of the glory of God and the maturation of believers. So you are doing a biblical thing. You are serving according to the will of God. That is, that is good. Paul worked hard in ministry because he knew it was worth it. You and I, we slouch and are lazy in ministry. Because we don't think it's worth it. My prayer through this week, for you and for me, is that we might start thinking it's worth it. That we might serve with increased fervency and faithfulness. We might not slack off, that we might remember better today that we need to work hard because His glory is of infinite value. John Edwards in his 41st resolution said, Resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year whether... Wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. We have less time to serve the risen Lord than we had when we started. But His glory is of no less value. So here we are at the end of a year. Let's assess our service. Let's affirm our commitment to Christ. And let's with greater motivation and zeal and fervency and excitement pursue ministry together for the exaltation of Christ. Because we know based upon the Bible God will be pleased. And maybe this year will be the greatest year of ministry this church has ever seen. If God is pleased to do so, we'd give Him glory. And let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this morning and for this this time to read in the book of Colossians and to look at Your Word. We thank You for the work that You did in the Apostle Paul's life. We understand, even reading the book of Acts, 
that Paul left unto himself was a, was a ravager of the church. He breathed out hatred for the church. And he is a perfect example of your patience and your miraculous power and confronting sinners and arresting them by your grace and making them new creatures. So we find great identity with the Apostle Paul in our own conversions. And we see his service and we, we marvel not at him, but at you. We pray that we might live more like you want us to, that we might amplify glory back to you. We might do this with great fervency and faithfulness, knowing our days are shortened. But your glory is indeed of infinite value. May you do this today, Lord, for your namesake. Amen.